This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, this is take number two. I forgot to click join audio. But thank you for joining us again. This is our third episode this month. We've been really busy. We're excited to have Brenda back, who's going to be presenting a case today. Hey, everyone. Glad to be back. And then we have two new discussants with us. I'll let them introduce themselves. Uh, hi, my name is Emma Ryan. I'm a fourth-year medical student here at Rush, uh, applying to general surgery this match cycle. All right. Hi, everyone. I'm Susan Mari, also a fourth-year medical student at Rush, and I'm applying emergency medicine. And then, as always, we have Dr. Abrams here with us, too. Yep. Hi, Rich Abrams. I am a PGY 45 in internal medicine. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe finish my residency this year. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just want to catch everyone up on the team, but Brenda has been doing medicine for her first three months of internship. She's a MedPeds intern, and today was day one of her PEDS portion that she's starting. So big change for her. We're not doing a pediatric case, though. Um, maybe we will soon, to be determined. But let's let's kick things off. All right. So our first aliquot, 75-year-old male presents with altered mental status after being found down at home by his daughter. What are you guys thinking? Um, well, I guess from like just an immediate EM perspective, I'd be like someone found down. I'm immediately worried about um, something like mentally cardiac. Um, is it like seizure like postictal could it be like hypoglycemia I is thought, there any oh go ahead i thought stroke yeah, yeah yeah uh down at home unattended don't know how long he's been there um and waking up with ultra mental status uh it'd be interesting to see if he had any other symptoms like uh weakness on one side sort of speech etc yeah and i definitely want to know how long he's been down for if if the daughter has any sort of way to tell us those are great first thoughts you're thinking about the big red flag Thing that you want to rule out. You guys hit a lot of things that are very acute in nature. So if this was something that was maybe more chronic or subacute in nature, would that change on your thinking? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would want to know if he had any uh, transportation aids at home, if he were using a wheelchair or a walker or something that he could have possibly fallen, hit his head, et cetera. Um, that immediately comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, something more long-term, like just thinking along the line of like chronic organ failure, like liver disease, renal disease, or even things like dementia can just all cause more like chronic um, changes in mental status. I was, and this is just an availability heuristic thing, but I was just talking to a family member, um, a close family friend who's been diagnosed with Lewy body dementia. And so altered mental status and movement issues that comes to mind. What about some other more subacute things, like a more chronic picture that maybe then I like to, there's a good example. It's like the, the pen is rolling and then suddenly it falls off the table. Ooh, I always think of drugs. <laughs> um, uh, possible toxicity is a big one. Or if he has any substance use problems, that can, uh, I would not be surprised to find someone down with altered mental status in that yeah. case either. Totally. Yeah. I mean, and I don't know if that answers your question yeah. about being subacute, but I would definitely think about not just like alcohol, but um, a lot of prescription drugs um, and even over the counter too, but like in, in our elderly population, like antihistamine, any like sedative hypnotics too that are prescribed or opioid that they may be prescribed for something. Um, if they're taking them quite as prescribed or forgot and accidentally took an extra dose it can definitely cause that. Especially in an elderly patient who seems to be living alone, although he's attended by his daughter, apparently close by, if she found him at home, was at least able to drive there or walk over. Perhaps being at home alone predisposes him to medication misuse. Yeah. And great point, Susan, too, especially putting into context this is an elderly patient. I like to do this with our EM bound guests. <laughs> <laughs> what are immediate things that you need to address as a EM physician seeing this patient for the first time? What are you going to check right away and or give? Ooh, I love it. I think 
because the differential is so broad and um, like the potential for this patient to be quite sick is there. I first thing, walk into the room, IV, O2 monitor. I definitely want to get an ACU check to make sure that he's not profoundly hypoglycemic or something uh, or even hypoglycemic. I think that's probably where I would start. Uh, yeah. From a surgical standpoint, of course, that's where I'm going to jump. Um, <laughs> I think class go coma scale and yeah. sees. So check, make sure that he's still breathing appropriately, check airway, et cetera. Um, breathing circulation, uh, check capillary refill and see if he has pulses on both sides, uh, at least upper extremities. I wouldn't necessarily go for his lower extremities. You want to make sure that everything next to the heart is working. <laughs> um, <laughs> sees for sure. Exactly. And then check his pupils. Um, see if, yeah. again, going back to stroke, uh, that will help narrow down your diagnosis as well there's any um, incongruities there i also would want to just after that so i definitely would want to do a quick like trauma survey if we're yeah. all worried about a fall or a head injury that's something i'd want to know right away to see if we're going to send the patient to the scanner or not mm-hmm. and even through altered mental status because in any pain anywhere um that fall if it was a fall you know who knows how he ended up down we're assuming that it is but if there are any breaks or any pain anywhere uh, you want to transport with care but, mm. and then just one more derailed section before we move on ms since you brought up pupils what if I told you his pupils were super pinpoint. What would you be? What would you be inclined to do? I would give naloxone. Nice, yeah. <laughs> that would cover, you know, an acute drug toxicity thing that, whether intentional or not, we could address um, in that emergency setting. Yep. Ready for aliquot too? Let's do it. Great teamwork so far, by the way. Thanks. I love that you call him aliquot too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, past medical history includes half rock, aortic stenosis, status post to tabber, alcohol abuse. He quit thirty years ago and prostate cancer diagnosed 10 years ago. Cool. So things that are jumping out to me initially are the half-ref and the aortic stenosis, um, although it is status post-taver. It's just things that, from a cardiac perspective, definitely, like, cardiac things can definitely cause, um, like, syncope, AMS, that kind of stuff. So I would kind of zero in on that. Um, And then what are your thoughts? Um, Alcohol abuse. I just got off my transplant rotation about a month ago, actually. (laughs) So um, I'm thinking hepatic encephalopathy. Even if he quit 30 years ago, if that's what's documented, that may not be his day-to-day life now. Um, If he's relapsed at any point, which is common in alcoholism, he could have been surreptitiously drinking alcohol and caused some altered mental status. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, please. (laughs) I say that. Oh, that's interesting because the alcohol use could be both an acute and or a chronic cause of an altered mental status. Acute, like you said, if um, there was relapse with alcohol use and um, he did start drinking again, that could be acute altered mental status. Or if he drank very heavily for however many years, even if he did quit 30 years ago, I mean, the potential for um, like alcoholic cirrhosis and liver disease causing mm-hmm. AMS is there too. True. He could have a superimposed hepatitis from any other source that could have caused this as well. True. Prostate cancer diagnosed 10 years ago as well. It could have recurred and caused, a, this is where my, the end of my knowledge kind of comes. I'm not great yeah. in oncology, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the prostate cancer issue. Okay. The only, I'm totally grasping at straws, but I feel like at some point, if you have trouble urinating and you have to like really I don't want to say bear down. That sounds weird, but it can cause, it can like stimulate your vagal nerve, I guess, yeah. if you're trying to pass urine. Sure, yeah. So it could cause syncope. Um, yeah. You know, I guess I'd get a better history and ask the daughter, like, where was he found? If he was found out in the bathroom, like that suddenly dumps it higher on my differential. Mm-hmm. I just got to jump in. I, this has been masterful already. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that seriously. You immediately picked out what you're kind of characterizing as the salient features of the case being the history of heart failure and aortic stenosis, but then questioning you know, it's been surgically repaired. You're not sure how that changes anything. And then Emma brings up that there's a history of alcohol abuse. So that could be something in the background that we have to be mindful of still. And then pulling out prostate cancer in the past, we're presuming treated appropriately and hasn't had issues since. You're already thinking of what would bring that further to your attention? What in the story would change that and cause it to 
you know, come closer to attention, which is just great. And this is, you know, 20 words of information. You just did all of that. <laughs> They're hitting all the points that I would want to bring up. So this is great. How would you distinguish? So you said if you like cardiac ideology, that could cause syncope. Mm-hmm. So how do you distinguish between the different types of syncope, whether it's like neurologic or cardiac? So any like syncope patient in the emergency department, we're definitely going to get an EKG. Um, and so that's like, I think that's step number one. Um, I don't know like a history perspective, I want to know what they were doing prior to losing consciousness. Um, uh, if they had any associated symptoms too. So if they had any like chest pain or dizziness or shortness of breath, or they were like exercising and then they passed out. That to me was more cardiac than neurogenic. Working off that, there can also be an orthostatic hypotension from just being volume down. And with a history of heart failure, um, you can have this obviously volume status changes, but I would check his volume status, see what his skin trigger is like, what again was his capillary refill. And see if it could just be he hasn't had enough water recently. Ooh, I want you to come down to the ER and do some orthostatic, <laughs> <laughs> orthostatic vitals. Please. Happy for the invitation. Thank you. All right. You guys want some more information? Yeah. Yes, please. Okay. So the patient had a similar presentation for altered mental status and agitation five months prior. Workup at the time was negative, and the patient started on antipsychotic with some improvement in agitation. <laughs> okay. Tempo is queen. As they say. Sure. So antipsychotics with some improvement in agitation. So antipsychotic use can be used for um, dementia, for Parkinson's uh, related dementia, for um, true mental health issues. And actually, it can exacerbate um, problems in the elderly. It's generally not uh, advised to give antipsychotics to people who are 75 years old and have all these comorbidities. That's, That's my initial kind of thought, but those are the only threads I've got. No, I I'm totally, I think you totally hit the nail on the head. Like I, I think, um, when we think about like drugs that can cause altered mental status in, especially in the elderly, like I think of antipsychotics as being one of those categories. So it's interesting that like his agitation is like somewhat improved, but now if we're seeing changes in his mental status, maybe it's time to reevaluate that medication list. I would be interested to find out if he had had a change in his dosage or in his type of antipsychotic recently, because if he's been stable, you know, what's happened in the past five months to uh, make him relapse now to this state or represent rather. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's hard to do a lot with this information, right? Because you don't know if altered mental status has such a broad differential, which you went over. So it could have been a completely different presentation before with a different cause. And now he's coming in with a different ideology or like you said, it's a change in medication. So. I think Kevin's point about tempo being the queen, king, I don't know, <laughs> but it, it is, it is just like you said. So the question is, is can you connect the dots between five, or you can always connect the dots, but how do you connect the dots between five months ago and today when the case is presented? So is it the same thing or is it two different things? And if it's two different things, how do those two things connect? If, if, if in fact they do, I, I, I like your analogies. Two analogies here: the, the pen rolling off the table, which is what I call the fence sitter. Ooh, right. So a fence sitter is, is somebody that are sitting on the edge of the fence, and in it doesn't take much, you know, depending on how wide the fence is, to push them over. Sure. So, so is this person always sort of sitting on the edge and? Whatever happened five months ago, pushed them over, which who knows what it was. And did they get back up on the fence and did something else? Mm. Did something else push them off? Yeah. So it, it's it, it, it's hard to say, um, but just acute, subacute, chronic, yeah. I think you're always asking yourself that question. Yeah. There's certainly some element of, I would imagine, you guys would say there's some 
chronic thing going on, whether the acute mental status is is how it ties to that, I don't have any idea. <laughs> I always think of medicine in terms of Occam's razor versus Hickam's dictum. <laughs> yes, that's Occam's I would say the same thing. The simplest answer with all circumstances being equal is usually the best. And then Hickam's dictum. A man can have as many diseases as he very well pleases. <laughs> you were already alluding to that. Like you were factoring in base rate by saying maybe there was a medication change. I mean, that is very likely, right? Like yeah. it's more likely going to be something common um, such as a medication change versus something that we're going to throw at you at a clinical problem solving exercise. <laughs> totally. Anything you want to add before we move on? No, I think we can give them more information. Okay, let's give you a physical exam. So vitals, he had a temperature of 103.4, heart rate 130s, blood pressure 88 over 45, respiratory rate 20s with an SVO2 of 96 to 98% on room air. He was an alert and oriented to self. Lungs were clear to auscultation with no crackles or wheezing. Heart rate was irregularly irregular. Had a three out of six, harsh systolic murmur. Cranial nerves two to 12 were intact. Five out of five strength in upper and lower extremities, and dysmetria was noted. To clarify, so this patient came in with altered mental status in the ED, and then this was a physical exam when he was seen in the MICU. Okay. I love those words, irregularly irregular. <laughs> I always what they mean. Oh, man. Well, before we get there, like, the vitals really caught yeah. my eye. Like, he's febrile, like, and he's not a little febrile. Like, one of 3.4 is, like, for sure febrile. He's tachycardic, too. I don't love the blood pressure. It's pretty low. Um you know, respiratory rate of 20. Um, eh. So, you know, he's definitely, I wouldn't say this is like a stable patient. So I think that has a potential to change management, change our differential. Um, I don't know, anything jump out at you from that? I would, I would get fluids immediately. Um, seeing that low of a blood pressure and that high heart rate. The temperature, you're right, is astounding, <laughs> frankly. Um, well, and I, I guess, one, sorry not to interrupt you, no, but one thing that we didn't mention in our initial differential was like, this is someone who, if they came into the ED, I think we'd flag potentially for sepsis, um, especially with the, you know, AMS, got a low blood pressure, tachycardic, high temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have to at least explore that possibility. And aortic stenosis with a reconstruction, that's a nidus for infection as well. Good point. <laughs> so smart. Well, it says alert and oriented to self, so I'm getting ANO times one. Can I ask? Because if he's combative or if he's... Um, more or less active that changes things as well you know sluggish versus trying to jump out of bed can point you in one way or another so he was a little more like wasn't combative in the MQ, but what would you think if he was more combative i would think i immediately jump to a drug toxicity in that case um it's not often that you see 75 year olds on pcp but i guess it could happen so yeah very good thought i think with the temperature too yeah uh, yeah that makes sense the lung exam being normal, um, that's reassuring to me that, because um, I, I think of pneumonia as being a cause of sepsis um, in the elderly that you don't want to miss. So the fact that that's a normal lung exam makes me feel a little better. And then you mentioned the regularly irregular heart rate being pretty pathomatic for like a med student dream. But so the three out of six harsh systolic murmur in someone with a history of aortic stenosis, that's what my mind immediately jumps to for a systolic murmur. I would want to know if there's any radiation to the carotids. Smart. Yeah, definitely. Again, I love vascular surgery. I was telling you guys earlier. So I would be checking all pulses and getting a read on possibly getting a quick ultrasound, um, like carotid ultrasound when was that good? I could. That's it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you just got off. Well, no, you're on ultrasound. I right am. Now. You can use it for everything. It's so cool. <laughs> um, awesome. And then, I don't know. what I'm like, I feel like you're better at neuro. <laughs> what do you make of this dysmetria? Again, points to me more short. I immediately think of a stroke type symptom, but that's lower on my differential now that his temperature is 103. <laughs> Regularly irregular heart rate. So there's metria. I don't really know. Although it could be a toxin that affects the cerebellum more 
more so than the rest of the brain, just speaking in broad strokes, though. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Susan, since you mentioned that you've been helping out do physical diagnosis course oh. with our M2 colleagues, yes. what kind of physical exam findings would you see in aortic stenosis? I was prepared to teach that today and my patient was sick there, so. Excellent question. Um, yeah, so I think, um, and it's funny because the M2s are like, I feel like they just want to be able to differentiate between normal and abnormal. So like being able to hear like where the murmur is. Um, and so hearing it like in the systolic part of um, the cardiac cycle is just one thing. So yeah, we're, we're always looking for a systolic murmur. Usually going to be heard best in the right upper sternal border. And the reason I asked about the carotids is because um, classically you'll hear um, radiation of the murmur to the carotids bilaterally. So, yeah. Great pearls. And then I was asked this, is it an ejection murmur or a crescendo decrescendo murmur? Ooh, good question. I think uh, first aid would tell you that it's a crescendo decrescendo murmur. That's what I was told. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, was, I was there when Kevin was asked this question in front of the whole CCUD. <laughs> I think you guys covered a lot of great things, Brenda. Do you have anything you want to add? Well, I guess my only question is what would you expect to hear with a tap, status post tap? That's a good question. I actually don't know. Um, I haven't I haven't assessed someone post chatter. So I think you like this is I'm taking a stab, but I think you would hear well, what did, what do they replace the valve with? Do you hear like mechanical valve sounds or do you hear like just the normal heart sounds? I don't know. So I didn't know this until I went and reported to the CCU that a patient had this really loud murmur and it was because they had a tabber. So oh, you still hear a murmur. Got it. Yeah. Would it okay. be a three out of six? Harsh systolic murmur? <laughs> <laughs> Would that murmur be incidental to his postoperative findings? Maybe, maybe this is his baseline and we don't need to worry about it as much. Maybe. maybe. The, yeah. the only other thing I would, would say, and you guys should bring it up before me, maybe I'll ask you this question. It does go back to his neuro exam. And there's so much here that's pointing towards potential infection. But I have to go back and think for a second about the non-infectious causes because they're always more interesting. <laughs> and what if I said, if you don't see it here, of course, I could ask the question, what if this person was really rigid? Hmm. Mm. Ah. Like lead pipe? Like, 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 oh. like when you pull on their arms, they didn't move very much. Ah. <laughs> so antipsychotic medication. And if you were 103, <laughs> yeah. lead pipe rigidity. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, well, you already said <laughs> neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Yeah. So in, in, in you don't think you see it, but you do see it. And if you don't check, you don't necessarily see it. So when, mm. when I think of particularly high fevers and so we've got the pediatrician over here and you know, 105 and a baby, you're like, yeah, they're fine. <laughs> but, but 103 and a 75 year old, it's like, boy, that's really high. And once you get really high, the differential diagnosis of very high fevers in adults actually tends to be non-infectious. Infections are, there's, there's, there's a handful of infections that you think, but you should start thinking of these sort of non-infectious causes of creeping in there. Yeah. I, I keep pulling more out of this physical as we continue to look at it. <laughs> yeah. Emma brought up irregular, irregular, which suggests AFib. And then I'm looking at the heart rate of 130. What does that make you guys think about? Does that change your line of thinking? Are you worried about anything? I feel like this is a classic guess what I'm thinking question. Yeah. <laughs> Go back to that non-infectious cause of, <laughs> non-infectious causes of, of high temperature and high heart rates and, and uh, tachycardia. Are you more worried about that heart rate knowing that it's AFib versus sinus. That's not really what I was okay. getting at. I'm going to say yes. <laughs> um, and a, there's something tickling in the back of my brain, but I can't necessarily, I can't necessarily bring it to the You're point. basically there. So 
AFib with RVR. Yeah. Oh. But what are like triggers for AFib with RVR? I think alcohol use is one. For sure. Yeah. For, yeah. for sure, yes. Definitely. Gonna, oh God. <laughs> I'm just, I'm thinking about how an antipsychotic would, would be metabolized and affected by alcohol use. Um, but what were you going to say? I just, I was going to throw drugs on the pile. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure that can do it. <laughs> I think I was asked on the CCU to name uh, AFib precipitants mm-hmm. and I was expected to continue naming them after like 20 plus things. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so you should be talking. So it, it turns out every, everything that you can probably think of can precipitate AFib. Interesting. The, the thing I always bring up is thyrotoxicosis. Oh. Yeah. AFib. Oh. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, see, so endo, endocrine can do it. Adrenal. Drugs, you name it. I'm upset with myself for not picking up thyrotoxicosis. <laughs> Such a good one. All right, let's move on to Alcott 5. All right, so we have some labs for you. So labs are pertinent for leukocytosis of 17, lactic acid of 5.8, alphos elevated at 256, AST 153, ALT 83, ammonia of 45, BNP 651, a CK of 995, and then a high sensitivity troponin 85.3. And the UA showed two plus blood and 21 RBCs. In blood cultures greater than two through group G streptococcus. So we give you a lot there. Take <laughs> huh? it in pieces. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot going on here. So the leukocytosis to 17 with a lactate of 5.8, I'm definitely leaning heavier toward like sepsis, an infectious cause. Mm-hmm. Um, pairing that with like what we talked about in the physical exam. Um, that's my first thought. Yes, I'm seeing multiple diagnoses jumping out at me just from the labs. Um, I agree with you, Susan, on the sepsis front. And then I just keep going back to alcoholism. His ASD is about twice as ALT and higher than we want either of them. So there's that. His sensitivity troponin is, I mean, broadly speaking through the roof. A heart attack, although you can have elevated troponins without a heart attack. Um, yeah. And I, I'm picking out like the BN, the BNP mm-hmm. um, of 651. Um, Cause I think you can have a really elevated troponin in heart failure as well. Right. Mm-hmm. So do you know why that might be? Uh, this gets into a non-semi-related cause of elevated troponin. Well, I mean, so like cardiac troponin is like released anytime your like heart muscle is strained. So that's how I think of it simplistic- simplistically, but I don't know. What would you say? I, I, you're thinking along the lines I was and what comes to mind immediately is like a demand ischemia. Mm-hmm. Okay. Especially given the septic shock picture that you identified. And then he's got positive blood cultures times two. Yeah, and that CK. Um, I I know it's like not super specific, um, but just as a marker of like um, inflammation, um, having a really high CK kind of fits with the picture as well. Mm-hmm. So going back to the first aliquot, you said he was found down. So that plus like the CK. Is there anything that you would want to consider? Wow. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I'd be thinking like potentially rhabdo. Which also makes sense with his urinalysis um, showing mm-hmm. two plus blood. Mm-hmm. So someone who's found down on the, like they could have been there for many hours. We don't know. Sounds like we don't have a great history. Um, that's definitely something I'm worried about. So we gave you a lot of information. If you had to put your money down on, <laughs> or just like general, like cardiac, infectious, NMS. Invoke your Occam's razor. What are the salient things of these labs that kind of fit together everything we've talked about so far? What are you most worried about? What might explain a lot? I mean, this person is very sick, right? Like there's numerous organ systems involved. Is it because multiple things are going on or maybe one thing kind of caused a a spiral down? 
I would say, yes, there are multiple things going on, but they're precipitated by, by one ideology. Well, you said everything can cause AFib, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then like, what would be another diagnostic thing that you would want to invoke at this point? Where, where are you putting your money? I, well, imaging wise, if I wanted more information, I would possibly get an echo. Um, really check on the status of his heart, see if there are any vegetations we need to be worried about. Again, if he has this kind of infectious picture um, with the aortostenosis as post-chatter, again, based on what Dr. Abrams was saying earlier, it's, I, I'm not, I'm not thinking necessarily as much about an infectious ideology anymore. It's, it sounds like drugs are kind of, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm more interested in investigating how the drugs are called all of this. Okay. Interesting. I'm putting my money on the dudes. <laughs> cool. I'm gonna, I'll put my money on sepsis. I think that it can explain like organ failure of multiple different organ systems. Um, especially in someone who has some pre-existing risk factors um, to, to like already, to be sensitive to damage um, to things like his heart and um, liver and all that good stuff. Yeah. So, and I think with the imaging, it's tough because we don't have like a whole history. Like I didn't get to ask a whole review of systems. Um, so I, like, is your analysis not showing anything? Like typically um, sources of sepsis in the elderly, I think of like uh, urinary tract infection, pneumonia, uh, lung sound were clear. Especially okay, with the prostate cancer history. Oh, yeah, good point, good point. Um, one thing we didn't talk at all about was like a septic, like a meningitis type cause. So mm-hmm. if, if we're like playing fast and loose with tests, like I would consider a lumbar puncture, honestly. Why not? <laughs> and then since you, you know, have kind of narrowed in on sepsis, mm-hmm. is what you're thinking is heading towards. You always got to think about a source. Yeah. You've kind of mentioned some general sources, but in this particular patient, where where are you being pulled to as being the most likely source? Yeah, I don't have a great source. So I would want to do a really good skin exam, make sure there's no like cellulitis anywhere because that can also be caused. Like it's like meningitis maybe. Also like in someone with these like LFTs and maybe a history of cirrhosis, like hmm. we could get into like, is there ascites um, with like an SVP type picture? Is there an infection in the abdominal cavity that we have missed somehow? So we got an MRI brain showed numerous scattered small acute infarcts in the supratentorial infratentorial brain parenchyma, findings likely embolic in origin. You got an echo. You asked for it. EF of 40%, and it did not show any vegetations. Well, in my defense, I did not ask for an MRI because no one ever gets an MRI in the emergency department. <laughs> 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 I did not know that was an option. <laughs> I handed that to you before you saw the patient. <laughs> what kind of eating is this? <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, well, findings likely embolic. What do you think, Emma? Well, he didn't have any vegetations in his heart, so that was going to be my my go-to. But if he doesn't seem to have an endocarditis picture... You were thinking, like, vegetations on the valve? Yeah. Okay. I was thinking, right, I was thinking valve vegetation. He has a history of, like, cirrhosis or something. Again, it, he could have... I go back to what I said before. He could have a superimposed infection in his liver, but that's generally going to be viral. It's not necessarily going to be... Bacterial thing, but you mentioned SBP, mm-hmm. spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, and I'm not sure how that would seed to the brain. But I guess if you, if there was, a, if there were SBP and bacterial seeding of the liver straight through the portal vein and up, I mean, would be the next kind of go. But that's a long way for that bacterium to travel for him to present this acutely. So I'm not thrilled by my own source. So does the TTE show what you were expecting, or is it a total surprise? It's not a total surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his EF is like a little bit decreased, but not um, certainly not like severely. And he has half ref. Yeah, so we, we expected that. But we don't know what his baseline is. So um, could be. 
Yeah, I think like I'm always saying, like not having any vegetations. Like I, I read the MRI brain findings and thought that that sounded like the typical like shower embolus from some sort of vegetation on a valve. And especially with that history of like he has valve disease, he should be more susceptible to um, uh, infections on the valve. So the only other thing I'm thinking, again, kind of from a vascular perspective, I love vascular, <laughs> um, is if we if he did have any atherosclerosis that could have custodying there he could have like a septic source there but that's kind of gross when it's just yeah so you're thinking more septic emboli versus thromboembolic it sounds like if the tte did show vegetations what do you guys think about the tte as a diagnostic study miss on ultrasound right now (laughs) (laughs) well we know it's not perfect um i think a tee is more um, because of clear image um obviously it's harder to do for the patient it's more invasive um and there's a number of reasons why we wouldn't do it, but um, I guess, so maybe um, seeing this EF and maybe not seeing any vegetations like doesn't necessarily rule it out, but um, I still think it's a pretty decent study. Okay. I think I'm going to jump Kevin for a second. Please. I know he's going to ask you this, but maybe at this time it is a good thing to do your problem representation. And, and if you, because I think these things are stories. Mm-hmm. So, and so now I'm asking you in your mind to sort of summarize the story and in, in, in one or two sentences. Is a, and, and I think it's useful as a way to sort of organize your thoughts. Yeah. So right. if someone was to just come in the room <laughs> and didn't hear any of this, mm-hmm. how would you wrap this case up as succinctly as you could with the pertinent things to kind of bring them up to speed? Assessment statement. This is my fatal fly. I always forget how old a patient is. 75. <laughs> elderly. They're elderly. So you want to, you want to take some? Why don't I start making tag team in? Cool. Tag me in. Okay. So we have a 75 year old with history of aortic stenosis status post-taver, um, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and remote history of prostate cancer and alcohol abuse who presents in the ED after being discovered at home down by his daughter with altered mental status, duration unknown. He has not been using alcohol for the past 30 years. He was treated uh, ostensibly for prostate cancer 10 years ago, unaware of his medications, of his social history currently, um, but his vitals and labs pointed to Again, <laughs> yeah. Oh, so I would just say, um, great. So I would say physical exam, um, significant for um, fever to 103.4, tachycardia, uh, hypotension, clear lungs irregularly irregular heart rate and initial labs were significant for leukocytosis, um, elevated LFTs, um, elevated lactase concerning for potential, uh, infections. Brain MRI showed numerous small embolic infarcts, likely embolic rather. Um, and TTE was unimpressive. I think you guys nailed everything. Um, Another piece I might add in with one other piece of, I think, hopefully pertinent information, which is cultures, right? Oh, oh and his culture Positive blood cultures times two. Yes. <laughs> right. Which we drew totally prior to starting antibiotics. Yes. <laughs> Good tactics. So now that you've painted the picture, where are you ladies headed next? I'm sending the patient to the floor. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you did that already. <laughs> I, would, I would start him on fluids. Um, again, due to the fall make sure that he's not in pain from anything, but control for fever, as long as you don't think you're interfering with possibly further diagnosis or appropriate diagnosis. I would start on empiric antibiotics. What else would you do? Yeah. Would it be empiric? Well, well, <laughs> <laughs> well, we have um, our blood culture. So it was 
group G syrup. Um, so we could target that. Um, I don't know. So I, I still would like a lumbar puncture for some reason. I don't know why, but. Yeah. Would you want any other imaging? Have you covered everything that you want? You know, it, as long as we're like throwing MRIs fast and loose, I guess that I would like extend the imaging to the whole spine just in case we're going to miss like a spinal, mm. like neural abscess or something. Um, I would I don't know. also consider a KU, uh, not a KUB, actually a CT abdomen all this. See if there's further nitrous for infection somewhere there, especially given that he has this history of prostate cancer and... Yeah, I don't know why I keep going back to the process. No, I, that's a good thought. I don't think anyone would fault you for either of those things. So, yeah, and like definitely you could just take a look overall at his liver. And then if we're even thinking about SBP, that's not a bad idea. So, great thoughts because you want to look for the infectious source. So, to kind of round it out, then, is there anything else you would want to make sure you've considered all infectious sources? Or are you, again, like we talked about earlier, are you satisfied with the TTE and you've ruled out the heart as an infectious source? Um, I mean, we could get a TEE for sure, just for complete. Say we'd get a chest X-ray, um, just because we didn't hear anything in the loss doesn't mean there's nothing there. Yeah. So we could just rule out uh, pneumonia that way as well. Yeah. Alcott seven. So they got a TEE. It revealed a prosthetic aortic valve with a 1.4 centimeter to 1.2 centimeter highly mobile vegetation present present on the prosthesis. A region of echolucency encasing multiple echo densities was seen at the aortic root at the level of the non-coronary crust consistent with a complex abscess and a complex echo density present on the prolapsing segment of the mitral valve that was 0.7 into 0.5 centimeters, likely representing the vegetation. Hey. <laughs> 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 um, okay, well, I guess we have a source. So yeah, that's good. Um, and that nicely kind of ties everything together, all of his labs, his altered mental status, his heart issues, his past history fits nicely in there. Cool. When I walk through how it kind of ties everything together, pathophysiologically. So he has emboli to the brain, you know, has this very septic picture, uh, multi-system damage resulting in the sleepocytosis as well as an elevated CK, BME, lactic acid, et cetera. Those are kind of my initial thoughts. If you have anything to add, that'd be great. No, I think that makes total sense. And like the idea of it being like an acute on chronic problem kind of fits the presentation as well. Yeah. I think you guys mentioned it earlier, powering emboli, right? Mm -hmm. That could be a good explanation for kind of everything we've seen. For sure. This this was the last aliquot and it, it was very revealing. But why don't put into context everything we've had, what would the final diagnosis be? Ooh. Okay, so I would say this is a gentleman with um, septic endocarditis, probably. Yeah, it's on the valve. I yeah. would say this is septic endocarditis um, with um, septic emboli to the brain. Yeah. And then do we, microbiologically, are you satisfied with blood cultures that we had earlier? Do you suspect that that, does that kind of fit your mental representation of a prosthetic endocarditis? Um, or would you keep searching? Um, I would try to get a, a sample of it if you can. Um, because I also think of group A uh, um, of staff, actually, having mm -hmm. um, an endocarditis picture, although that's usually more likely on the tricuspid valve. But uh, given how long this has been going on and his predisposing factors, I wouldn't be surprised if it were uh, multimicrobial, oh, yeah. polymicrobial. Rather. Yeah. And I think you also have to worry about like biofilms and like resistance and that kind of stuff so i think it's okay to start broad and just cover what we think it could be but you're right i totally think about staph like um staph epi, epidermis yeah, yeah. um staph aureus, uh 
in addition to some of these strep as well. Mm -hmm. So final diagnosis, you guys got it, prosthetic valve endocarditis with group G strep, complicated by septic embolic phenomenon. Phenomenal. <laughs> I mean, both of you said endocarditis really? and multiple times. Yeah. As soon as the chopper as soon as the chopper was brought up, yeah. So we tried to throw you off, but you brought it up multiple times. And I think Emma said, oh, he said it's post tabber, like that's just a nidus for infection. Yeah. 100%. Um there were a lot of distractors. And I think you guys did a great job of keeping everything in context and kind of reframing your thinking. Just overall, very impressive. I'm still thinking back to the second aliquot with his past history and how you guys kind of navigated through that and really set yourself up for this case. Uh, Brenda, do you have anything to add? I think that was a great discussion and you still kept it pretty broad, even with that fever, not just zoning and infection, which I think is important to not anchor. Again, great discussion. I'm blown away. <laughs> so I got a couple comments. Maybe I'll ask you yeah. on the case because yes. I'm sitting here thinking group G strep, which... I don't know very much about it. We'll get to your teaching points in a second, but 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 all I can think of is that this guy is horrendously, horrendously sick. Mm. And and I sounds bad, but I goes back to that vascular surgeon that you want to be. This guy needs some, this guy I think is ultimately needs some kind of surgeon because this thing is is now involved, not just his prosthetic or whatever that, whatever they put in there, but it's 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 funneled into his mitral valve yeah, also yeah, yeah. and i can't imagine that there's any amount of antibiotics that are gonna that are gonna cure this but you could tell me otherwise so unfortunately this didn't end very well for the patient um so this was on the micu what was a really good teaching point so similarly he was in the micu initially we got the tte and there were no vegetations and so we figured okay this isn't endocarditis there's another infectious source in the meantime he actually stabilized with the antibiotics, he got a little bit better. His mental status improved. Um, and we transferred him to the floor. And then he got the TEE and got sent back to the cardiac ICU. And then happened to code in the cardiac ICU was brought back to the MICU. Unfortunately, didn't, didn't make it because he showered more um, septic emboli to the brain. Very unfortunate ending, but again, a great teaching point that you can't really rule out with TTE. Yeah, that's a, I'm never going to forget that now. That's Something right. I've kind of learned, picked up, I think it was both in the ED and then being on the cardiac intensive care is TT is great to rule in. If it's there, you can stop. But if it's negative, you keep going. If, if you're thinking about endocarditis. I've got my own list of things that you never trust. <laughs> never trust the, uh, the, the, the whatever, the scans. So I, I think about CTs for subarachnoid hemorrhage, right? That's an ER thing, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So it's negative. Ah, that's okay. I think of CTs for epidural abscesses because they often don't show up. Right. And so you, so you never be fooled. And then TTEs for endocarditis if you have strong suspicion mm -hmm. because they may not show up. And mm -hmm. so it's that little kind of list of, yeah. of those things that you say, okay, but I should get, I should get the, the next test no matter what. And then one more to add on to that is uh, left atrial appendage if you're suspicious for yes. a thrombus there. Yes. In the setting of AFib. Yeah, right. So along those lines, I found it very surprising that apparently the average detection rate with TTE is about 50% for endocarditis. Ooh. I didn't know that until wow. I read up more on it. But, Want to walk us through some teaching points? Yes, let's do it. So since we're already talking about kind of the sensitivity of TTE versus a transesophageal, so we can start with that. So again, 50% average detection rate with TTE of endocarditis. 
Um, and I found that vegetation size also affects the sensitivity, which is interesting in this case because it was a big vegetation, but apparently 25% if it's less than five millimeters and then 70% of those between like six to 10 millimeters are seen on TTE. But when you have underlying bowel disease that also affects the um, sensitivity of TTE. So I was like reading a couple of papers where they also recommend like even sometimes TEE doesn't show it with these prosthetic valves and that you would get further imaging like CT chest. Um, so I didn't know any of that. So that was interesting. But generally for infective endocarditis, so infection of the endocardium, like you guys talked about, typically caused by bacteremia secondary to like dental procedures, um, IV drug use, like a distant primary infection, all of which you talked about um, as a nidus for infection. We are typically taught to break it down into acute versus subacute, and then based on whether it's a native valve versus a prosthetic valve, it kind of affects the chronicity of it. Um, and then initial symptoms are super nonspecific. Systemic symptoms you usually have fever, malaise, weight loss, um, and fever is the most common symptom that you see. I think like 90% of patients um, will present with fever. And then you use the Duke's criteria for diagnosis. Um, so you have two major criteria and then you six minor criteria. So the two major criteria would be one, you want like positive blood cultures, but then within that, there's some specific, um, you need two, if it's like typical organisms that you would see, but if it's a more atypical, you think it can be a contaminant, you need three or greater than four. If you're like greater, you need a majority that's greater than four blood cultures to consider it a major criteria. And then you also need endocardial involvement seen on the echo. And then the minor criteria are things that we kind of talked about, but you can have um, like a predisposition, which you nailed it on the second aliquot. So having a prosthetic heart valve or IV drug use, so you have a predisposition to it. Um, vascular phenomena, so like septic infarcts. Um, you can see like the Janeway lesions. You can have immunological phenomena like glomerulonephritis. Um, and then you can also, blood cultures can count as a minor criteria if it doesn't hit those like greater than two um, for the typical organisms that you see. Um, and then just some stuff on group G strep. Um, I know Kevin has some more points, but I was reading that it's actually been reported more now with people with pre-existing valvular disease. And it commonly you see embolic complications with group G strep. And it has like very similar virulence factors to compare it to group A strep with like the M protein. Um, and it's pretty rapidly progressive. Yeah, I think all I really had to add was because our ability to diagnose and characterize microbiologically, it's being diagnosed more. And we're actually finding that a lot of things that we presume to be group A strep or group G strep. Okay. So you can kind of think of them similarly causing a similar clinical disease. Um, and then like Brenda mentioned, when it is GGS bacteremia causing endocarditis, they are very likely to have embolic events. Mm -hmm. And then specifically, we always associate IV drug use with Staph aureus, but it's actually a significant risk factor for group G strep also. Okay. The other interesting thing that I read was when you see group G strep with endocarditis, they're like starting to see associations with colon cancer. Yeah, because it's I think it's a, it's it's a GI it's a GI bug. The, the, the other thing I would say is we talk about strep viridens mm -hmm. and strep viridens is those are that's associated with with SB subacute bacterial endocarditis because they aren't you know they're 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 these, you guys told me the word I'm trying to think. Indolent? Yeah, they're, they're much more indolent. Sorry, you get old, you forget what you're saying. <laughs> they're, they're indolent <laughs> organisms. And and so once this grew strep, once you saw strep G here, I knew the outcome was gonna be bad because this person had 
acute bacterial endocarditis. And it goes back to tying those points together. Mm -hmm. He didn't have it five months ago. He had it three hours ago or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, and these organisms like dissolve things the way I think of it. I actually think it's actually worse than having staph in some ways because there's, so, they make all these toxins, they embolize, they do all sorts of horrible things. And you've got, this was it, he needed surgery. There was no other option for him. That would have been the only thing that could have potentially saved him because he, you could already see he eroded half of whatever this thing is away. And so it was a really, really virulent bug. And, and, mm -hmm. and that was, you know, once you saw that bad things were flashing and a, and a, and a bad outcome was, was coming with him. Well, thank you, Emma and Susan, for coming on and being discussed with you guys did fantastic. You guys were fabulous. <laughs> you were great. <laughs> and thanks, Brenda, for coming back to present a case. Have fun in the peds world. And then to everyone listening, good luck to all the M4s applying right now. Um, URAS is coming up in a week. Excited to hear where everyone ends up. Thanks again for listening. Person, time, and place. We'll see you next time.